theyeshiva.net. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, my dear friends. Thank you, Rabbi Bukit. Thank you, Rabbi Pinney. Thank you to both of you for your kind and gracious words. Thank you to Chabad of West Boca for this special invitation and privilege to be here with the community of West Boca this special evening and the entire community of Boca Raton, Chabad of West Boca, Chabad of Boca, all Jews of Boca Raton. And thank you to all of the Chabad ambassadors and Chabad centers of Florida for joining us here with so many hundreds of Jews. Thank you for everyone who's gathered here, whether it's from West Boca, Boca, Florida, all of the states of the United States, and we have many of our brothers and sisters the world over joining us here this evening on the various uh, media, internet outlets, the yeshiva.net, and other websites streaming it, Facebook, etc. So it's really a privilege, and I'm grateful to be able to be here with such a special community, and thank you for bringing us all together. I also want to give a special thanks to a very proud mother, Mimi Rebetzin Mimi, who sponsored and dedicated this evening and this event in honor of uh, the birthday of her legendary daughter, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, happy birthday to Daniela Malka Pearl Glantz on your Yom Holedet. May it be a Yom Holedet Sameach, a very beautiful and happy birthday and an awesome year of bracha and atzlacha to you, all of your loved ones, your entire family, all of your friends, the entire community, and all of the Jewish people. We know that birth is the day that God declared that you matter. Birth is the day when God declared that the world is an incomplete place without you, without your soul's descent to this earth, to give your unique, divine, spiritual, and sacred light that you bring to the world. That's why we celebrate birthdays. That's why birthdays are days of profound introspection and days that are dedicated to make a reckoning of our lives of the past and the present and the future. In this case, I know that our birthday girl, indeed, is a great light. And I know that on the day you were born, Hashem indeed said that you matter and you have been taking the torch that was given to you in your birth. As the Talmud says in Tractate Nida, page 30, that every soul before it emerges from the womb of its mother, and we have here the proud mother as well, they give the soul special energy and resources so that it should be able to fulfill to fulfill its mission. I know that uh, Daniela Malka Pearl always had and still has a special fondness, a special uh, feeling for chesed, for love, for kindness. Her mother shares with me that when she was just a little girl, she founded a mitzvah club for her friends, classmates, brothers, she arranged for all of them to make weekly visits, Erev Shabbos, every Friday, to nursing homes, focusing especially on elderly residents who had no family members to visit them, not on Shabbos, not before Shabbos. And the mitzvah club that Daniela Malka founded handed out grape juice, challah, sang Shabbos songs, and visited with these senior residents who had no family connections and were very lonely. It's interesting, just as a parenthetical note, it turns out that one elderly lady that was visited from this mitzvah club that our birthday girl or woman created happened to be a nurse to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's mother many, many years earlier. The Lubavitcher Rebbe's mother passed away, Vav Tishrei, 
Tovshin Chavhei, right before Yom Kippur, after Rosh Hashanah, 1964. She's been through a lot. She lost her husband and she lost uh, much, much of her family to the Holocaust. Her son was shot and her other son died very young. And the one nachas she had was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, I guess you can, you can call that nachas. And she had a nurse. But then she passed away in 64. Somehow this nurse ended up in this home. And these young girls, led by Daniela Malka, brought inspiration to her as they did to many other senior citizens, women and men who were lonely. And today, today with her beautiful family, Malka is the epitome of an Aishas Chayil. She instills the same great values of Torah, mitzvahs, chesed and Avas Yisrael and their Echeretz into her children, her family, her community, values that she exemplifies. And as her mother says, now that's Jewish continuity. So I am moved to be able to be part of this birthday celebration and part of this special evening of inspiration and spiritual growth as we as you titled it marching into a new year 5781 the world has changed have we changed now there's no question about it every year is significant and every year is memorable in its own way but there's no question that 5780 will not be forgotten at least not in the near future not by the young and not by the old what a year it has been hayoyim haras oilam Today, Rosh Hashanah, we say, is the birthday of the world. I think this year we will have extra, these words will have extra meaning, because Haras Olam means also today, the world trembles, the world shakes. And indeed, the world was shaken over the last six months since the pandemic, the coronavirus really spread. Not a single person's life has not been affected in one way or another. Not a single sector in the entirety of the human race, has not been transformed in one way or another. Nobody, not the rich and not the poor, not the young and not the old, not the great and not the simple, no community, no civilization, no culture, no tribe, no faith, no religion, no nationality, has not been affected and somehow unified with the rest of mankind as we confront this little tiny invisible creature we call the coronavirus, the size of 125 nanometers, or as, if you wanted to put it in other words, 100 million viral particles of the corona can fit on a pinhead. Okay, think about vulnerability and humility. A hundred, you hear Rabbi Penny, 100 million viral particles of the corona can fit on a pinhead. I'm not going to even tell you how many can fit on an eraser, on a pencil, on a pencil eraser. And one of those has changed the entire world. Talk about impact. If this is true on the, in the negative side, it's certainly true in the positive side. So my dear friends, how do we march into the new year? How do we summarize such a tumultuous, loaded, intense, powerful year? A year that has seen a lot of pain, a lot of crises, a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. I assume most of us have lost loved ones, relatives, family members, mentors, teachers, close friends. Some of us have fallen ill ourselves or have watched others desperately struggle to be able to recover. Everybody was affected, whether financially, emotionally, psychologically, socially, spiritually. Our communities, of course, were transformed. And our children, their education changed. The entire process of schooling and friendships and no normal social life we took for granted. Everything was changed. How do we sum up such a powerful, such an intense, such an intense year? 
So my dearest friends, I am going to, with the grace of God, focus on a few fundamental points that I believe should be part of our soul reckoning and our contemplation and meditation as we bid farewell to Hey Allah from Tafshin Pei 5780. And with an open hug and embrace, we await a new year, 5781, with new possibilities, new potential, new energy. I begin with a startling and perplexing medrash on the verse that we say every single day during the entire month of Elul, including Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days of Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, all the way down to Loshana Rabbah. And this is a very special prayer we add every single day during this entire season of the high holidays. At every prayer, and it's known as Tehillim chapter 27, Psalms 27, which begins with the words, Ledavid Hashem Oiri. This is one of King David's Psalms. And in it, he has that immortal verse, and I quote, Achas sha'alti me'esadinoi, oiso avakesh. King David says, there's one thing I ask from Hashem. This is what I yearn for, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at the pleasantness, at the sweetness of Hashem, and to visit His sacred sanctuary. Many Jewish songs have been written, or quite a few songs have been written on these lyrics, some very nice songs. I know from my Rosh Hashanahs with Rabbi Pinney, this is one of the songs. These are really beautiful words. King David says, I ask for one thing, one thing I ask. What do you ask for? You want to win the lottery? You want to be able to purchase a beautiful home in Boca? What do you ask for? You ask for health, you ask for prosperity, you ask for nachas. What am I asking for? One thing. I want to sit in the house of Hashem all the days of my life. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, a very short line, very short insight, extremely profound and very poignant and very moving. And he said, I'm going to say it in Yiddish, and then I'll translate it and elucidate on his words. He said, why do we say this capital in the month of Elul? He said, because in the month of Elul, we have a unique mission, a unique opportunity. And he said in Yiddish, Ayid nemt, Allah zayna bakoshes, Allah zayna tchines, Allah zayna sha'elos, Allah zayna sha'elos, achas sha'alti, unemacht von Allah von zei achas. It's the time of the year when we're given the opportunity to take all of our requests, all of our pleas, all of our yearnings, all of our quests, everything I'm searching for, everything I want, and to turn them all into one. To turn the many, from many, one. To turn them all into an achas sha'alti. Into one. To really discover that at the core of all the requests, of everything I dream for, I'm looking for oneness. I'm looking for achas. Achas sha'alti. What do you mean? Who asks for one thing? I want a lot of things. I have, I have a big list. My roster, my roster of things doesn't end so easily. A Jew? You don't ask for one thing. Gotta be Meshigah. 
they tell a great story of the Satmar Rebbe. Rabbi Yoelish Teitelbaum. Rabbi Yoelish Teitelbaum passed away in the summer of 79. So they tell us a very nice story about it. I heard this story from a friend of mine, my father's good friend. His name was Rabbi Hertz Frankel. Rabbi Hertz Frankel was the principal for many years of Weiss Ruchel, the Satmar Girls' School. And he said that once a Jew came to the Satmeruv, the Satmer Rebbe, and he said, I must have money. I need to marry off my daughter. I don't have any money to marry off my daughter. This is back in the 50s or the 60s. And I desperately need money. Would you help me? The Satmer Rebbe was a very big Baltstock, a very charitable person. He used to give a lot of, collect a lot of money and give tremendous amounts of charity. So, uh, so, uh, the Satmer Rebbe says, how much do you need for me? He says, I need $500. 50s and the 60s. $500 was a nice amount of money. It's still uh, not nothing. But then it was $500 was 500 bucks. And uh, that's what I need. So the Satmir Rebbe asks him to wait a moment. And he goes to another room. And he comes back with $400. And he gives the Jew the $400. And he gives him a blessing and the Jew leaves. So his Gabba, his assistant, was a Jew named Rabbi Yossel Ashkenazi. He says, may I ask the Rebbe a question? I asked the Satmar a question. He says, yeah. he says, I don't understand. What's $400? The guy asked $500. Why didn't you give him $500? He didn't want to give him. Why did you give him $400? What's, what's, what's this hedgement for? You could have given him another hundred bucks. So the Satmar Rebbe said, if I would have given him $500, he would have been miserable. Because <laughs> he would have left the house and he would say, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a fool. Why did I ask for $500? I should have asked for $5,000. Should have asked for $20,000. This is a type of guy. He gives you whatever you want. He would have left miserable. He would have said, I'm a dummy. I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. He says he got $400. He's happy. He says, I don't give what you ask for. I give what I give. Now he's a happy man. I want that he shouldn't only leave with money. He should also leave as a happy person. It's a profound lesson. First of all, in psychology, how to treat a person. And our people are often never satisfied. I give you what you want, but you want much more. Comes, comes David HaMelech and says, the month of El, when it comes to Shoshani Yom Kippur, you know what a Jew does? A Jew manages to reveal, Ach Of course I want a lot of things, but I really want only one thing. Behind everything, behind everything, Ach There's an achas, there's a oneness that I'm searching for. Deep, deep down, if you peel away all the layers, I'm looking for one thing. Ah. That's what happens at this time of the year. Life is often fragmented. We're frazzled, we're stressed, we're anxious, we're pulled in many directions. Corona challenged us to retreat a little bit into ourselves, to quarantine, not just physically and socially, but also emotionally, to be able to go to a deeper place, to ask serious questions. What do you really want? What are your real priorities? I know you love to travel. You love going on vacation. It's a Jewish thing. You love going away for Rosh Hashanah. You can ask Rabbi Pini. You love going away for Sukkot. You love going away. Yeah. We like good food. Some of us like golf. Some of us like sushi. Some of us like a lot of other things. We want money. We want to be comfortable. Of course, we want health. We want to live comfortably. We want to have nachos. We want to have good relationships. We want so many, so many things. And they're all important, or at least a lot of, I can't say they're all important, but a lot of things are important and very, very meaningful. But when you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, said the Rebbe, you're going to find achas, you're going to find one. But for that, you have to go deep. 
You have to penetrate very deep. And you're going to find one. And you're going to find that you're looking for one. And at the core of everything, you know what you want? Shifti beves Hashem kol I want to sit in the house of Hashem. I want to sit in the presence of infinity all the days of my life. I want to be one with oneness. We say in the Zohar Friday evening before Baruch and Kegavna, Here is a startling medrash. Comes the medrash, there's a medrash called Medrash Tehillim. It's a medrashic commentary on Tehillim by the sages of Yor. And the medrash quotes one of the great Talmudic sages, Rabbi Abba. And you know what he says? On the words, Achaz Sha'alti, King David says, I ask for one thing. The Medrash says, Malchus Shah. You know what David was asking for? He was asking to win the presidential elections. He wanted Malchus. He wanted sovereignty. He wanted royalty. He wanted kingship. He wanted to be the new emperor on the block. That's what he wanted. Malchus Shoal. That's what he was asking for. Listen to the words he says. When he says, there's one thing I'm asking from God. You know what he wants? He wants to be the next king. He wants to be the next monarch of the Jewish people and maybe of the world. Now, my dearest friends, I ask you a question, dear brothers, dear sisters. Hey, Lekayidin, how do you make sense of this? King David is pleading to Almighty God. And he says, I ask for one thing. This is what I yearn for, to sit in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at the sweetness of the Lord and visit his holy sanctuary. Comes the Medrash, comes the Baba and says, nah, nah, don't be deceived. <laughs> don't be fooled by the external words. Don't be lured into the, to the gifts of gab, to the nice prose. I want to sit in the house of the Lord. No, it's not what he's asking for. He's asking for Malchus. He wants to win the elections. He wants to be the next president of the United States of America. He wants to be the next leader of the Middle East. He wants to be the next king of the Jewish people. That's what he's looking for. King Shaul was the king. King Saul was the king. But he wants to be the king. He's looking for Malchus. Why should we impose such ulterior motives, such types of ambitions and dreams into the psyche of King David when that's not what he's saying? Yes, some people want to be kings. They want to rule the world. They have a great ambition for power. Whatever the incentive behind that is, that itself can come with many different shades and types and forms and and manifestations. Granted, it's a human need. Some people yearn for power. They yearn for leadership. Whether it's egotistical, whether it's humble, is a completely different question. It's not for tonight. But where did he see in these words? King David innocently says, I ask of Hashem to sit Imagine, imagine, I'm watching you sitting and you're weeping and you turn to God and you say, I ask of one thing. I want to be truthful. I want to be close to truth. I want to be one with oneness. I want to be aligned with infinity. And I turn to my friend and I say, no, 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 don't believe her. All she wants is power. She's a control freak. This is not the Jewish approach. He never said he wants Malchus. He could have said, God, Make me king and make it, make it and do it now. Yeah, somebody once said the serenity prayer in Manhattan in New York is God, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> Ask for Malchus. Why would Reb Abba distort his words and impose such motives into David Amelech's extraordinary, majestic, transcendental and spiritual request? 
Friends, it's here that you will discover the subtlety, the depth of the tradition of the Midrash. Rabbi Abba is not trying to accuse King David with ulterior motives. He's not trying to impose more sinister intentions in King David's beautiful and elegant and ecstatic prose. That's not what he's trying to do. He's actually, like every Midrash, he's trying to accentuate and reveal the nuanced depth, the inner emotions, the zeitgeist, the inner consciousness and soul that vibrates through these words of King David. He wants to make us aware of appreciating what is really behind these words of King David. And I want you to tune into this explanation, this possible explanation, because I think it can teach us so much about ourselves and our times. Let's remember the context. Where was King David when he spoke these words? What is the context? What is the historical context behind Psalms chapter 27? Well, you could read the Psalms. King David speaks in the beginning, he says, God is my light, God is my salvation, and therefore I have nobody to be afraid of. There are people who are coming to hurt me. They want to eat my flesh. They are my enemies. They want to distress me. But ultimately I know they will fall. Even if an entire camp comes to attack me, in I will not fear. I have someone to trust. And then he says, I ask for one thing, to sit in your house all the days of my life. And he continues, he says, protect me, put me in your sukkah, in a day of distress and misery and agony. He speaks about the enemies that are lifting up their heads and their power in order to destroy him. He speaks about the fact that his father and mother abandoned him. But God will take me in. He speaks about the fact that so many people want to abduct his soul. There are false witnesses. There are thieves, robbers, and killers who want to deprive him of everything. He says, I would have never survived if I wouldn't believe that I'm going to find God in the, in, the, in the land of life. Wow, what a chapter, what a poem. I'm going to ask you to read it tomorrow in English if you don't understand the Hebrew so you can see what I'm saying. This is not a chapter that's written in calmness and serenity. King David is lying on a hammock near the water, drinking pina colada, reading some lovely novel, a lovely book. And then he goes to meditate by the water and he speaks to God. No, he's on the run. He's worried about immediate attacks. A whole camp may attack him. He naturally should be distressed, anxious, full of fear, full of anxiety. This is a man who's a fugitive. He has no home. He has no community. He has no tribe. He has nobody to welcome him. Remember, his own father-in-law accused him of treason and tried to kill him. When you read through the Tanakh, the biography of King Saul and King David, you see this man was persecuted by his closest kin. His own family rejected him as a young youth. And then when he finally married the king's daughter, Michal, the king was persecuting him and tried to kill him, not once and not twice. The man was always on the run. He was a fugitive running from one place to another place, hiding by the Philistines, hiding in caves, hiding in exile. King David is the one who says, I am in a barren land, thirsty, without water, and my soul thirsts to you. What does a person who's a fugitive, who doesn't know where he's going to be tomorrow night, where he's going to gain security from shelter, food, drinks, what does such a person ask for? 
when he lies down in the wilderness or in a cave, puts his head on a rock to be able to get two, three hours of sleep and hopefully survive the night. What do you ask for? When you turn to God, what do you ask for? Well, I think naturally you ask for God. Just give me a bed. God, just allow me to find a motel that will take me in and give me a room for a few nights. Allow me to find a bed and breakfast where I can cover myself with a blanket, where I can lie down on a mattress, where I can have a cup of water, where I can find a morsel of bread, where I can relax for a few hours without my heart beating, without the anxiety and the trepidation that any moment the king may send his troops to kill me. At such a moment, when danger lurks all around me, when my entire future is uncertain, I go back to the minimum basics, to the instinctive, the instinct for survival that even an insect has, that every mammal has, that every living organism has. Just, just let me survive. Find me a place where I could protect myself, where I could find shelter from these vicious enemies. That's what I ask for. That's what I'm thinking about. How can I think about other things? In Abraham Maslow's pyramids of human needs, I'm at the minimum basics. You want me to think about <coughs> transcendence? You want me to think about meaning? You want me to think about purpose? I think about bread. I think about water. I think about a bed. That's what I think about. That's what I would expect King David to beg, to cry for, to yearn for. Comes the Medrash, comes Rebabah and says, Malchus Shal. You know what set King David apart? You know what made David Amalek, David Malik Yisrael, Chayvakayim, Neims Miris Yisrael? You know what it was? Malchus Shal. He never lost sight of his true potential, of his true destiny, of his true calling, of his ultimate vocation. He never lived a life of quiet desperation. He never surrendered to mediocrity. He had to deal with a lot of pettiness, but he never stooped down to petty people or to pettiness. He always maintained his grandness, his largeness, his majesty, his inner spiritual aristocracy, his royalty. Maimonides writes in Mishnah Torah, he says, there were many kings among the Jewish people, but the crown of royalty, Keser Malchus, was given to David, to King David HaMelech and his dynasty, his genealogy. Mashiach is going to come from David HaMelech. Why? Because there was a gift of royalty. Royalty is a gift. There are people who serve as leaders, but there are people who are essential leaders. Even when they're in the privacy of their own room, even when they're refugees, even when they're fugitives, even when they have nothing, they are essential leaders. They're essential kings. They say a beautiful, beautiful vart from the Briskerov. The Talmud speaks about Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, who was of course King David's son and heir. And it goes through the stages of how his life evolved from a great, extraordinary monarch whose wisdom was world-renowned and attracted followers, disciples, colleagues, kings and queens from all over the world. Malka Shmen, a lot of the stories about Shlomo HaMelech. Ultimately, Shlomo lost much, much of it. The Talmud goes through the stages of his life and says, At the end, he was a king over his stick, over his staff. Tragic words, right? Tragic words. At the end, he was a king over his stick, over his staff. On a literal level, it means basically, look what happens to a person. He owned the world. He owned the Middle East. Shlomo Melech. Wow. 
Shalom Yibiyam of peace in his days. Jews sat under their grapevines, under their fig trees. He was a world attraction. He built this magnificent first base Hamikdash as a spiritual epicenter, not just for the Jews, but for the world. His wisdom, we know, is the wisest man on earth. At the end, he reigned over his stick. My late father, Mr. Uh, Gershon Bear Jacobson, my late father, Zechrena Levracha, was a journalist for many years. Some of you remember him. Some of the rabbis remember him. He was an interesting personality. And he was the front page editor of a Yiddish daily newspaper called the Day Morning Journal, the Togmargen Journal. Some of your babas and zaydas lived with these newspapers. They didn't have a good English. They came to America. This was their newspaper. It closed down in 1972, 19, the end of 71. My father was the front page editor, and as he used to say, he was the youngest employee there because all the Yiddishisten were older Jews. Their children already didn't know Yiddish. So uh, the editor of this newspaper, the Tugmargen Journal, he was an interesting man. He's a great Yiddish writer. His name was Dov- Dr. Meckler. David Leib Meckler. David Leib Meckler. Dr. Meckler. And for many years, he was the editor-in-chief. And remember those days, it's not like newspapers today. Today, with the internet revolution, everybody has a newspaper. Everybody is a reporter. Everybody has opinions. Everybody is sending out clips. Everybody became But then newspapers were newspapers. They were they had the, the, the they represented the voice of the community, the voice of the tribe, and they had extraordinary power because this was the source of information for, for, for hundreds and thousands of people. So the editor of such newspapers contained a tremendous amount of power and influence. But then Yiddish faded, and it waned, and the generation died out, sadly, and the Yiddish press came close to extinction. Besides, in the Hasidic community, and some parts of the of the Yeshivish community, mostly the Hasidic, where they held on, and they still hold on, to Yiddish as a language. Dr. Meckler died in the 70s, after his newspaper closed down already. And my late father, my father, was walking, he was walking in Brooklyn, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe meets my father, and he says to him, he says, you went to the funeral of uh, Dr. Meckler? So my father says, yeah. So the Rebbe says, how many people were there? So my father says, Kama minyan. there were barely 10 people there. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was a great student of human nature and a wise man, lifted up his hands and he tells my father, ah, when he was needed, everybody knew where to find him. Everybody pursued him when he was needed. When he was on the top of his game, when he was sitting on the throne of the editor-in-chief of a powerful Yiddish newspaper, everybody was running after him. Now he's a mad, dead man. He passed away. Who shows up? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, of course, was saying, speaking in irony, but expressing this very powerful, this very powerful sentiment about human condition. My father was once at the funeral of a woman. She was the wife of one of the great Jewish philanthropists in New York. He supported every single Jewish school. He gave enormous amounts of charity, and his wife predeceased him, and he was at his own wife's funeral. He was already an older man. And my father was walking near him. And he turned to my father and he says, look, everybody came to the funeral. Everybody came to the funeral. They all, he says, how many people will be at my funeral? They all came because they want my money. How many people are going to be at my funeral? 
He tells this to my father <laughs> at his wife's funeral. He wasn't impressed with the fanfare, with the drama. He felt there was ulterior motives. It's the real test of human nature. I'll be here for you. I'll run after you when you're powerful, when you're influential. But what happens when you're under the bus? What happens when you're in the abyss? What happens when you're having a hard day? The relationship is superficial. So the Talmud says, at the end, King Solomon was a king over his stick. Ask the briskerov, how could you be a king over your stick? You could be a king over a people, over a nation. How can you be over a country? How can you be a king over a stick? It's like you say, I'm a king over my cup of coffee, and I'm a king over my desk, and I'm a king over my pencil. I'm a king over my cane. What type of king are you? And he said something very profound. The Talmud is saying, you don't understand. Some people are kings because they have great empires, because they have a lot of followers, because they have a lot of power. But some people are kings essentially. The Balatanya has an expression, there's malchus be'etzem. You're a king essentially in your bones. Even if there's nobody there, you're still a king. Shleim HaMelech was a son of David. He had the gene of royalty. Even when nobody was there, he was still a king. It happens to be that at this point of his life, there was only a stick. So he was a king over his stick. You can be a king over your stick too. Because kingship begins inside the soul, not outside. Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Shabbat Soloveitchik once said, this was the issue with the brothers and Joseph. Joseph said, I'm going to be a king. They said, eh, he's not a king. He's spoiled, he's immature. He's wearing the garbs of royalty, but he's not a king. You know what they did? They stripped him from that colorful royal tunic that his father dawned on him. And they said, let's see what happens now. And they sold him as a slave. And what happened? As Ecclesiastes says, from prison, he emerged as a king. The brothers found out that their brother was a true king. He was a real leader. His leadership was not dependent on the environment, on the circumstances, on the clothes. We know that sometimes the emperor has no clothes and sometimes the clothes have no emperor. So they stripped him from all the clothes. They sold him as a slave. They reduced him to the beer skeletons of his core. What happens now? He emerged as a king. From prison, he emerged as a king because he was a king internally. This is how Rabbi Soloveitchik explained one dimension of the story. Comes Rabbi and says, David is a fugitive, but you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about Malchus. He doesn't allow his inner passion, his inner fire, his inner calling to be reduced, to get lost in the pressure of the moment. He always had his eye, his gaze on his ultimate destiny, on the ultimate target. King David never allowed himself to lose his true humanity, his true calling, his inner neshama, his inner identity, his, the trajectory of what his soul was sent down on this world for. He was not just asking for a comfortable bed in a motel. He was asking for the ultimate, for Malchus. And for him, what did it mean asking for Malchus? It meant, For him, Malchus meant, I want to be in the house of God all the days of my life. Because even his leadership, what did it mean for him leadership? Leadership for King David ultimately meant that he should serve as an ambassador of Hashem. His leadership should be one of true Malchus. His leadership should be one in which he becomes a conduit for the divine to be able to be there for the people.
If you ask people now, so what do you want? What are you going to ask for the Rosh Hashanah? What are you going to pray to God for? And people will say, well, I want my business to survive. And I want my family to be healthy. And I want to be able to get back on my feet. And I want the shuls to open up. And I want the schools to go back to normal. And I want to be able to visit my parents and my grandparents. And I want that the mall should open and the stadium should open and the parks should open and the amusement parks should open. And all the supermarkets should open. And life should go back to normal and people should be healthy and we should find a wonderful vaccine and be able to defeat this uh, insane pandemic and go back to normal. And you know what? Those are good requests and may God fulfill all of these prayers and may all who need a refu and need to be healed should find recovery and everybody should be able to have the most healthy and abundant and prosperous year. Incredible. And I let's say, amen to that. However, let me submit that as one wise man said, never allow a crisis to pass without turning it into an opportunity. Because if that happens... The crisis may be in vain. I'll remind you the words of Jacob when he finished battling and wrestling with an adversary throughout the entire night and he says to Jacob, let me go because dawn has broken and Jacob says, I will not let you go before you bless me. Bless me? He's a gangster. He tried to kill you. Jacob understood the essence of resilience and faith. And it's this message that sustained his descendants till this very day. And that is, when you face a difficult challenge and a difficult moment in life, or difficult challenges and moments in life, it's not just enough to extricate yourself from it and pray that life goes back to normal. No way. You have to be able to look at the adverse, at the adversary in its eyes and say, I will not let you go. If I do not emerge from this experience more blessed, more wise, more authentic, more deep, more truthful, and more empowered. Because the Jew understands that if ultimately God is present in every aspect of reality, so that means even those moments and those experiences that are filled with anxiety, those things that break us and challenge us and remove all of the facades and the external layers that often eclipse our raw, and truest core, in those challenges, in those difficulties, lay a calling, lay a spark, and I must seize the moment and transform them into catalysts and springboards for awareness, for renewal, for rebirth, for transformation, for getting to know myself and becoming a new person. We must learn from King David even as a fugitive. He didn't only ask to be able to have another meal and life should go back to normal. No! Malchus Shoal, he always understood that his calling, his vision is much larger. And on the contrary, he understood that the crisis he's experiencing is only to prepare him and to make him that person who will be able to become the greatest king and poet of Jewish history. David Malach Yisrael Chai as we say in Kiddush Lavana from Rosh Hashanah Dav Chavay. I say to you, my friends, we have all been through a lot during the last months. Don't waste it. Don't just ask yourself and God, when are we going to go back to normal? Of course we want things to go back to normal. Of course we want this crisis to end and to end fast. But we want something much more. We want to welcome a new world. As the world has changed, we want to make sure that we have changed. You want to open yourself up to new opportunities, to new possibilities. You want to make sure to seize all the awareness that you have discovered over the last few months to become a new type of person, an extraordinary person. 
to become a true ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, wisdom, authenticity, truth, and redemption. You don't only want to continue living a mediocre life. I don't want just to go back to normal. I want to be able to seek a new awareness, new birth, renewal, nothing short of metamorphosis. I want to change my lenses and I want to change my ears. King David says, Aznaim karisali. Through the Torah, you have given me new ears. What does it mean, new ears? I want to hear things in a new way. I don't only want to go on with the regular life. I want to be able to expand my horizons and challenge my old perceptions and open myself up to infinity. This is what coronavirus ought to challenge us to do. Let me go back and create the most incredible marriage in the world. Let me go back and reevaluate my own relationships with my own children and create really powerful, meaningful relationships. And if those relationships need help, let me challenge myself to the core and allow myself to confront my traumas and my skeletons and my fears and my insecurities so that those relationships can experience really a new birth and a metamorphosis. And the same is true with my relationship with my siblings, my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my relatives, with my friends, with my communities, and with strangers. This is a time for people, for each and every one of us, not just to look for the bare minimum. Malchus Shah, ask yourself in vision, what is the most royal life that you're capable of? And don't allow yourself to surrender to mediocrity. Don't allow yourself to be content with a couple of crumbs. Don't allow yourself just to be content with living a tedious, monotonous life. No, Malchus Shah, you're a prince, you're a princess. You're a son and daughter of God. Reb Aaron of Karlin, the great Aaron of Karlin said, the greatest tragedy in life is when a prince or a princess forgets who they are. One of the greatest tragedies in life is when you forget who you are, what your calling is, your destiny, your vocation, and your ultimate power and potential. They tell an old beautiful story. A little bit of a sad story, but it has a very good lesson in life. And it goes like this. There was a farmer, and the farmer was walking in the field, and he came, he chanced upon a nest of eagles, an eagle's nest. And he noticed that there was an egg, and the egg was orphaned, it was abandoned. Apparently, the mother eagle was gone. Perhaps she fell prey. Perhaps she was wounded. Perhaps she died. But she was not here to take care of this egg. And the farmer felt compassion for this egg. So he took the egg to his chicken farm. And he had one of the chickens sit on this egg together with the other eggs that he was sitting on and warming. And indeed, after some time, this egg, which was in the chicken farm, hatched a little chick, which he and all everybody else assumed is just another little chick that was born. And this little chick grew up with all of its brothers and sisters in this chicken farm. It looked a little different. It grew a little different, it had some different character, genetic and physical characteristics, but you know, it was similar enough to be able just to attribute it to some genetic mutation, and it hung around the chickens, it walked with them, it crowed with them, it ate seeds with them, and this went on for many, many years as they roamed the farm, and they lived as chickens. One day, this chicken, who was hatched from that egg that the farmer found, was already an old, old chicken, an altayid. And he was hanging out in the farm and eating some of the seeds over there, looking for some food on the ground. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw an eagle 
a soaring eagle, Keneshe Yorikinoy al Gaizal of Yerachev, for Esa Eschem al Kanfin Sharim. He saw an eagle with its wings spread out, soaring so high. And this old chicken looks up and sees this sight and turns to its siblings, the chickens, and says, Ah, how I wish I was an eagle. Ah! The chickens <laughs> made a sound, kukuriku, and they went on eating. And I told this to my students, and I said, you know, none of the chickens looked up and said, Ah, how I wish I was an eagle. You know why? Because chickens don't want to be eagles. But this chicken looked up and said, Ah! How I wish I was an eagle. Because this chicken was not a chicken. This chicken was an eagle. This chicken was an eagle. He just didn't know it or she didn't know it. So when she looked up at the eagle, she said, Ah, how I wish I can be me. How I wish I can be an eagle. Why is it that we have so much anxiety? Why is it that we have so much stress? Why is it? So we all tell ourselves, because we're not exercising enough, we're not meditating enough, we're not taking the right vitamins, we're not taking the right medication, we're not doing enough yoga, we're not doing enough Pilates, we're eating the wrong foods. And those are all good stuff. You should eat the right foods, and you should take the right vitamins, and you should do the right stretches, and you should work, work, work out, and etc. <laughs> all wonderful stuff. But you have to identify the real underlying purpose. And that is because there is something deeper than survival at our core. Because we're not chickens, we're eagles. God says, I transported you out of Egypt on the wings of eagles. Do not reduce yourself to a chicken. Because if you do, there's a part of you, there's a void that remains unfulfilled. You're something greater, you're something deeper. There is infinity invested in you. You're a child of God, you're an ambassador of Hashem. You're an agent of the Rebbeinu You are a manifestation of divine light and infinity in this world. As Shmuel Hanavi told King Shaul, Im Katoin Atabe Necha Aloy Roish La Alpha Yisrael Atabe Im Shachacha Hashem Lamelech Yisrael. He told King Saul, In your eyes, you may be a very small man, but you're a leader of the Jewish people, and God anointed you as His King and His Monarch. Indeed, this was the downfall of King Shaul. The downfall of King Saul was he did not understand who he was. He was a humble man, and he was truly humble. But because he was truly humble, he confused humility with smallness, with meekness. He became fearful. He responded to pressure. King David was a very different type of person. David HaMelech was also very humble. He says in Tehillim, I'm a worm, I'm not a human being, I'm a disgrace of people. He says in Tehillim, later in Tehillim, he says, Nafshi kegomol David HaMelech says, I could be completely silent. I feel like an infant in the bosom of its mother, suckling, nursing from the bosom of its mother. That's what I feel like. David HaMelech was deeply, deeply, deeply humble, but he didn't confuse humility with meekness. The read, because he was so humble, he can ultimately see himself as an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom. Who am I? My eye is a channel and a conduit for God's light in this world. And therefore, never be meek, never be afraid, never stop understanding that you have an opportunity to live life to the fullest. You're a king, you're a queen. Maximize your potentials, carpe diem, seize the day, seize the year. Don't allow a pandemic and a coronavirus to bring out the meekness in you. Allow it to bring out the greatness in you, the leadership in you. To paraphrase Thomas Paine, these are times that try men's souls. These are challenging times we face uncertainty. There is an extraordinary 
eruption of anxiety in people's life. Everyone I speak to, there's so much anxiety. A lot of anxiety. And we understand why. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety. Even though we have so much to be thankful for. And even though people say, oh, your grandparents had it much worse and your great-grandparents don't even think about Stalin and Hitler. Come on, what are you complaining about? All great, but the fact is people have tremendous amount of anxiety. There's a lot of stress in people's lives. And these are trying times. People are hurting. Everybody's hurting. And our youth has been very affected by this corona. Months and months in the house, in isolation. Hours and hours and hours, technology. There's a lot of challenges that we face. But that's not the question. The question is our approach. How we face it. How we handle it. These are times that try men's souls and women's souls. I shared this on one of the clips that I think it went viral in the beginning of the pandemic. Somebody sent me a clip where I watched a clip, a piece of news in the Bronx, in New York, in, in, in New York, the beginning of the pandemic, there was absolute chaos there. And one of the hospitals was being flooded with patients. They did not have enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough beds, not enough, uh, um, not enough ventilators, not enough uh, equipment. It was just absolute havoc. And I saw that one of the news reporters interviewed a female chief physician who was in charge of that section of the hospital in the ICU. You could see that she hasn't slept much. A lot of body bags, a lot of people were dying. It's a hospital in the Bronx. And this news reporter went over to her. And he said to her, are you falling apart? When you watch these tragedies in front of your eyes, and nobody knows what hit them, you remember? Nobody knew what hit them. Today they still don't know what hit them. But... It's a little more under control. But then it was, it was just absolute chaos. You remember the first days, the first weeks? A generation was wiped out in Brooklyn. So this, this reporter turned to her and said, are you falling apart emotionally? She looked him in the eyes. You could see she was exhausted. And she said these words. And I'll never forget them. She said, all my training my entire life, all my years in pre-med, all my years in medical school, all my years of residency, all my years as a physician, and all my years as the chief physician here in the hospital in this department, all of it, all of my experience, all of my experiments, and all of my work over decades, it was all to prepare me for this moment. If I fall apart at this moment, it was all in vain. And I have to say, I said to myself, a klugefroy, she's a wise woman. She gets it. She gets it. She says, it was all for this moment. <laughs> this was the moment. <laughs> Before this, it was just, you remember Rabbi Pini in camp, they would have, we would do these songs, right? Camp songs, theme songs, and an alma mater songs. They were very nice songs in camp. So the first time the judges made you sing the song, and the second time was for points. I said, all my training this time, till now, wasn't for points. It was just, you know, playing around a little bit. Now it's for points. It was all for this moment. I say this to you, my dearest friends. All of our training, 
and I say this to you, all my colleagues, my, the rabbis and the rebbitsons, and every one of you, because each one of us is a leader in our own way. All of our training, all of our learning, everything we learned and we memorized and we internalized and our practices and our habits and the good things we did, which are all wonderful and extraordinary. It was all for this moment, for such a moment. If we lose it now, oy gewalt. In such moments, the worst of people comes out and the best of people comes out. Some people become cynical, apathetic, sad, depressed, indifferent. They run into the cocoon and other people shine in ways that they never shined before. Malchus Shoal. They allow challenge to turn them into visionaries. They transcend pettiness. They get rid of the external egos. They don't allow trauma, skeletons, fears, insecurities to define them. Not because they don't have them. We all have them. Great people have the same fear like everybody else. The difference between great people and mediocre people is the great people don't allow the fear to define them. They don't allow the fear to dictate their lives. They don't allow the fear to control them. We all have fear. We all have insecurities. Who doesn't have insecurities? If your mamas don't have any insecurities, then less Dane Barnash. If you're a human being, you have insecurities. I can't talk about you. I can talk about me. The question is not if I have insecurities. The question is what defines my life. What, a, what creates my choices? At such a moment, we say, Malchus Shoal. Don't just let the year conclude on a low note. Let the year conclude on a high note. Become the best version of yourself. Go into your infinite reservoir of resilience, of faith, of wisdom, of wholesomeness. Remember, at your core, your confidence is unlimited because you're an ambassador of the infinite God. Maximize your potentials. And allow your mark and your light to be imprinted, not only on your soul, but on the souls of all people you will come in contact with. And on the souls of all the people you have influence on. So that we can set our world on fire in a positive way. Fill the world with a fire of the love of God, the love of Torah, the love of Israel. Avas Hashem, Avas HaTorah, Avas Yisrael, which expands to the love of humanity. To be able to transform our world into the place that it was supposed to be, a conduit for divine truth, morality, values, goodness, and kindness. May all of you be blessed with the most awesome, extraordinary year of health, happiness, prosperity, for you and all your loved ones, for our brothers and sisters in Israel and the whole world, for all of humanity. A year of redemption. Thank you very much. And Shana Tova. Thank you, Rabbi Bukit. Thank you, Rabbi Bukit. Rabbi Bukit, may you have tremendous hatzloch in your sacred work with your community and your family. And, and thank you for everything you do in Boca from Mechayel El Chayel, from strength to strength with tremendous blessings and success. Are we taking questions? I, I was told we're taking questions. That's what they told me. That's what Rabbi and Rebetzin Kramer told me. We have 40 questions, 40 questions. Is that enough, Rabbi Bukit? Okay, the first question here somebody asks is, how do you know what your role is on the planet? Rabbi Bukit, how do you know what your role on the planet is? <laughs> Rabbi Pindi, how do you know what your role on the planet is? Huh? You know, Rabbi Pindi, it's not fair to ask you this question. You know why? Because Rabbi Pindi... In, in the late 80s, he wanted to buy a beautiful home in Crown Heights, and he was building a beautiful business, right? And he thought his role on the planet was to make a lot, a lot of money, and to support a lot of good Jews and a lot of good Jewish institutions. 
And then everything changes because he gets an answer from the Lubavitcher Rebbe who says that you should discuss it with your wife because I think your role on the planet is to become a shliach, to bring Yiddishkeit to hundreds of thousands of Jews in Florida. And the rest is history. So I guess that's how you know what your role on the planet is. But not everybody gets such clear directions. So I'm going to answer that question very, very briefly. It's, of course, a very personal question. You have to always identify a few things. Number one, you have to identify the circumstances you're in. In other words, every part of my life is by divine providence. If you went through certain experiences, you ended up in certain places, physically and emotionally, it's not a mistake. That's part of your journey. That's part of your destiny. That's number one. Number two, you have to identify your skills, your resources, what you're good on, what you're good at, your talents. Yeah. You also have to really look deep inside of yourself to be able to see what are the unique energies that Hashem has given you. That's not so easy. You have to be able to look at that. And finally, there's something else to look at. What are you scared of most? <laughs> Usually, there's resistance to that which we have to do. That which is the most important in our lives gets the most resistance. I don't mean resistance that is good. For example, I have resistance to jump over the Brooklyn Bridge. That's good resistance. But I'm talking about things you know you should be doing, but there's a lot of fear and a lot of resistance. That's probably part of your mission. Next question, my dear friends. Okay, wow. Next question. Why do we dip the apple in the honey? I thought the reason is because it's delicious. But the most basic reason is because the apple and the honey represents the fact that we are searching for a sweet year, but there's something even deeper. And that is, the apple is naturally sweet, but it also has a sourness, a tarty taste to it. Honey, the honey comes from a beehive, right? Bees could sting, but bees can also give the most delicious, delicious honey. So basically on Rosh Hashanah we pray to God not only that it should be a sweet year, it should be a sweet year like apple dipped in honey. That even those things in life that we could perceive as a sting and as challenging, we should be able to perceive the sweetness in it and transform the light into darkness and the challenge into an opportunity. How do we know that what was pre-corona was normal? We don't. That was the point of my lecture. <laughs> that was the point of my lecture. Thank you. Thank you for understanding. Yes, but that was the point that pre-corona wasn't normal and you don't have to, you don't have to go back. You don't have to go back to, uh, <laughs> to that. The Algemeine started in 1972. The Tug shall now closed down suddenly. The, the publisher was Mr. Jacobs. My father comes to the office one day. And the newspaper was closed down. There was a gate. It was just closed. He closed it one day. Everybody was out of a job. My father came home in the middle of the day. My brother Simon told me he never saw my father in the middle of the day. He never even saw him at night. Suddenly he's home in the middle of the day. And he looked like an Oizgeklapta Oishina, which is what the Oishina looks like, Oishina Rabba, after you pound it. He lost his job suddenly. He had a, little kids, no, no source of income, and it was over. So a few months later, in February 72, he opened up a new Yiddish newspaper, which was a weekly instead of a daily, and that became the Algemeiner Journal. He opened it up with the help from some partners, 
But that was inspired a few months after the day morning daily Yiddish newspaper was closed down. And I happened to be born that year. So that year, as my mother says, two new babies were in the family. One was a physical baby and one was a newspaper baby. Okay, my dearest friends, I love you all. Shana Tova. Thank you again to Chabad of West Boca. Thank you to Rabbi and Rebetzin Kramer. Thank you to uh, Malka. Thank you to uh, your mother Mimi. Thank you to Rabbi and Rebetzin Bukit. Thank you to all the Shluchim of Boca and Florida. And thank you to all of you. Shana Tova to you and to all of our people. Ksiva v'chasim Good night. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.